1: Bolivia has the world's largest reserves of lithium, an increasingly important element in an increasingly battery-powered world. We ask why the country hasn't yet made the most of its deposits and whether lithium could still turn its fortunes around. And Poland has a refugee crisis on its border and tempers are flaring. At a concert of the music of Frédéric Chopin, a Polish composer who himself ended up in exile, our correspondent finds polls reminded of how much the refugee experience has influenced their culture. But first... For weeks, there have been worries that Evergrande, a Chinese behemoth that's the world's most indebted property developer, would fail to pay its creditors.
2: If Evergrande were to fold, it's feared the collapse would send shockwaves through the country's property sector and beyond.
1: Yesterday, at last, it did. When it missed an interest payment on a sliver of its foreign bonds, the ratings agency Fitch said it was in what's called restricted default. That will have reverberations throughout China's enormous property sector. For foreign investors, it just adds to the drama. A week ago, Didi, China's ride-hailing giant, delisted from New York's stock exchange heading for Hong Kong. For Didi, there's a push and a pull here. China is trying to draw its homegrown firms back home just as American regulators squeeze them abroad.
3: Hello, John. Uh, Foreign public companies that are listed in the United States may be delisted if their auditors do not comply with requests for information from U.S. regulators. We're talking about more than 200 companies potentially being kicked off U.S. exchanges if they don't open up their books.
1: Didi won't be the last to decamp. It's all part of a plan, or at least a pattern. China's leaders want to build out a domestic financial system and bring foreign investment flooding into it. But they're going to need to steady Evergrande's fall and to steady investors' nerves if they want capital flows to start flowing the other way.
3: Chinese companies have been going to the U.S. to raise capital for decades. This was generally seen as a positive thing on both sides.
1: Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor.
3: To American investors, you know, this is a very positive thing. They were getting access to to Chinese companies. For the Communist Party and the the Chinese government, I think it was also viewed in many ways as as quite positive as well. They were bringing in much-needed dollar funding at a lower cost. They were linking up with a pretty big pool of professional talent in, in New York. So this was definitely a good thing for quite a while. Now it's changing very rapidly, and... By most accounts, within the next couple of years, most of the Chinese companies, probably all of the Chinese companies, with about 2.1 trillion in market value, will be wiped off of U.S. exchanges.
1: You say that things are, are changing very
3: fast. What's behind that change? I think there's two big factors that are causing this change. It's kind of strange in a way to see U.S. regulators and Chinese regulators almost agree on one thing, which is that Chinese companies should no longer be listed in the U.S. From the U.S. regulatory side, the U.S. wants access to auditing documents, internal auditing documents at these companies that shows that their auditing is sound. China has always denied access to these and this has been a major sticking point between the two sides for a long time. You also have a very emboldened cybersecurity regulator in China that is now saying basically it doesn't want certain types of companies necessarily be listed overseas. There's been a lot of language around how a company like DD Global, which is uh, one of the world's biggest ride-hailing companies, could represent a national security threat in some of the data that it has access to. It's really hard to understand exactly how the data that they're talking about gets into US regulatory hands. But this, of course, connects back to a a much bigger campaign that's going on in China where Chinese regulators and the Chinese government have been cracking down on on tech companies for about a year now. And it's not just limited to Didi. It also involves fintech companies, delivery companies. But Didi has been a, a focus of this. A lot of that has manifested now in the fact that it is going to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. It'll probably list in Hong Kong. The thinking is that it's making this decision because it is under pressure from Chinese regulators to leave the U.S. and go back to an exchange that's
1: closer to home. So this is a a U-turn for China, essentially sort of pulling back its firms from foreign markets and and cutting itself off.
3: It it can appear that way. And in some ways, it is stepping back from the U.S. market in in a very big way if this does actually happen. But I think it's not quite right to say that China is cutting itself off. In fact, over the past couple of years, it's been opening its own financial markets and inviting in Western players, Western banks, asset managers, insurers. And it's really bringing in these Wall Street banks and many banks from Europe and getting them to play on their terms.
1: But one view of that is that that China is sort of winning this battle. It gets all the same business, but uh, in a regulatory regime that it likes better. From the perspective of U.S. investors,
3: I mean, I think there's a good argument that that China is winning here. I mean, U.S. investors are going to want to follow these these companies wherever they go, and they will be cut off from investing in them in the U.S. There's definitely some big risks for China here as well. As much progress as Chinese markets have made in recent years, they are a bit primitive in, in some senses. The Investment banks that are coming in don't have access to a lot of different hedging tools that they need. Another aspect of this is that if a Chinese company has taken on fundraising from foreign private equity investors, it is very difficult for the private equity investors to cash out in the Chinese market. So that's another sticking point. There are, I think, quite a few problems still with the domestic
1: market that needs to be worked out. The discussion about Didi delisting was was last week's. However, this week's is, is all about Evergrande. And it, at last, it defaulting, we've talked on the show about how it was kind of always going to. How does that fit into this picture?
3: I think one thing that Chinese authorities need to do in order to continue bringing in foreign capital is to make sure they don't have financial meltdowns. You know, they've had a couple in the past. Evergrande is one of these events that people have been waiting for for a long time. Investors have been watching to see how the government is going to handle this. If it's handled in a good way and it doesn't cause one of the many risks that, that could pop out of this and kind of rock the markets, you know, if they're able to avoid those types of problems, I think it's a signal to investors that they're making a good decision and that could lead to more allocation to the onshore market.
1: There's a lot of of ifs there, Don. I mean, what do you think will, will happen? How will the Chinese leadership avoid all of those pitfalls you lay out?
3: What they need to do is make sure that sentiment in the onshore real estate market doesn't completely collapse. They need people to continue buying houses. They need people to believe that if they make a large down payment for a house, that they're going to get the house that they paid for. So the government needs to make sure that there's enough liquidity to keep these projects rolling. And at the same time, they also need to make sure that other developers that are healthier than Evergrande do have access to, to credit and can continue building. If sentiment goes sour and it's worse than they were expecting, they could end up with a market that is kind of in free fall. But so far, they do seem to be able to keep projects onshore running. So people are people who paid for homes are probably going to get homes.
1: So there's simply quite a lot going on at the moment, dealing with with Evergrande and and how to let the air out of it easily. All of this regulatory change, firms kind of upping sticks, this pinching of Chinese tech firms. It's a time of serious reform. Does that pose any political risk for for Xi Jinping?
3: Chinese regulators and the the central planners in Beijing have a lot to deal with right now. And 2022 is the end of Mr. Xi's first... 10 years in power, and most people assume that he will continue, 2022 needs to go very well. The markets need to perform well. There can't be any kind of social unrest in China during this year. So yeah, dealing with all these things right now and adding COVID on top of that presents uh, big risks, I think, at least in terms of making everything appear that Mr. Xi has control over the entire country.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Don. Thank you. Okay, last time on this one. A final reminder that we'd love for you to take some time this weekend to take our survey. Tell us what you think, the good, the bad, and well, maybe leave out the ugly. Head over to economist.com slash intelligence survey or just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. blindingly white and, well, really, really flat. They're really not good for much, except as the setting for land speed record attempts. For the world's largest ones, though, in Bolivia, it's what's beneath that's useful, a salty brine that just might change the country's fortunes.
4: The de Uni is a salt flat in southern Bolivia that spans 4,000 square miles. It's so vast and so white, you can see it from the moon.
1: Sarah Maslin is The Economist's Brazil correspondent. She recently returned from a visit to Bolivia.
4: The top layer is made up of all these huge crystallized hexagons, and it's strong enough to hold the weight of jeeps and hotels made of blocks of salt. Underneath that, there's a layer of brine, which holds the world's largest deposits of lithium.
1: And is Bolivia doing anything to get that lithium out of the ground?
4: So in 2013, the government started building a pilot plant to extract lithium, and it's now about to finish an industrial-sized plant. I recently spent a day at these facilities, which are right near Rio Grande. Bolivia uses the most common method for processing lithium, solar evaporation, or basically just letting the sun do the work, to isolate different salts in the brine, including lithium, which comes at the very end. At dawn, when we arrived, there was a huge turquoise pool with flowing water and this strong smell of eggs, which I guess is a sign of evaporating sulfates. <laughs> but only 96 out of 160 pools are currently in use. And eight years after it opened, the pilot plant is still pretty artisanal.
1: And, and that artisanal nature, that, that inefficiency, is that an outlier?
4: Well, people in the towns near the salt flat have been hearing rumors about lithium for decades. And since around 2008, the government has been trying to figure out how to extract it. Lithium, of course, is used in electric car batteries, cell phone batteries, solar panels, and demand is skyrocketing. It's doubled in the five years from 2015 to 2020. But even though Bolivia has the world's largest lithium deposits, it's actually lagging far behind Chile in Argentina and is only going to produce a measly 600 tons of lithium this year, which is practically nothing.
1: So why is that, though? Why is Bolivia lagging so far behind here?
4: Well, part of the problem is just technical. Bolivian salt brine has proved really tricky to turn into lithium thanks to its high levels of magnesium. So the end result is that, while Chile is able to recover around 40% of the lithium in its brine, Bolivia is only able to get about 15 to 20% through its evaporation and processing.
1: You say that's part of the problem. What's the other part?
4: The other part of the problem is political. For more than a decade, the leftist government has been really reluctant to involve foreign companies in lithium production. This reluctance stems from Bolivia's historical experience during the 16th and 17th centuries. A huge hill called Cerro Rico, or rich hill, in a city near the Salar de Oyuni, was the source of half of the silver produced in the New World, but little of these riches stayed in Bolivia, and Potosí is now the poorest department. So when you talk to people from the communities around the salt flats, they talk about how important it is to not repeat this history when they develop lithium. And the government has taken a really nationalistic stance, insisting on controlling all of its extraction, even though it really didn't have the know-how to do so.
1: So is that to say they've just avoided contracts with with foreign firms or or any attempts to get that kind of know-how?
4: In 2018, after years of unmet production targets, the government signed a deal with a German firm, ACI Systems, for a joint venture to manufacture lithium hydroxide, a form of the metal that goes into batteries. But some aspects of this contract, which was signed behind closed doors, struck a lot of people as unfavorable to Bolivia. It was going to last for 70 years, which is a very long time for pretty experimental technology and it also had some conditions about who would be selling the lithium and how much of it would stay in Bolivia that many people think wasn't really going to be useful for Bolivia's ultimate goal of industrializing and producing not just lithium but also batteries. So opposition to this deal ended up getting swept up in these mass protests in 2019 against the former socialist president, Evo Morales. And even though he withdrew the contract last minute, it didn't help. And he was ousted from government in November of that year. Now there's a new president, Luis Arce, who was Avril Morales's finance minister. But he signaled he may be more open to some investment and partnerships with foreign firms to help with the lithium extraction and processing.
1: Will that finally do it? Will Will having somebody on board who can negotiate contracts that the people can get behind be the, the needed change here?
4: So there's a lot of hype and excitement in Bolivia right now. There really is the feeling that this could be a turning point that said, some of the government's goals look pretty far-fetched. A lot of people are raising eyebrows at a government development plan that says Bolivia will produce more than eighty thousand tons of lithium per year by twenty twenty-five, which is about a hundred times as many as they're producing now.
1: But given the fraught history of this so far, at least the direction of travel looks good.
4: So my sense, after spending a week in the Salar de Uyuni, is that people are extremely hopeful about lithium production. They are hoping that this new government will finally be able to make a deal that will get things going and that ramped up production will spur development in the area, like paving the dirt road between Rio Grande and bigger cities nearby and providing jobs to truck drivers who have a little cooperative in Rio Grande that serves the plant. Eventually, people hope a local university could open with degrees in STEM fields so that local people could get jobs working in the plants itself. But I guess, knowing the fraught history of Bolivia's lithium project, all of these dreams should probably be taken with a grain of salt.
1: Sarah, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thanks, Jason.
2: Last month, I went to Warsaw to report on the migrant crisis on the Polish border.
1: Matt Steinglass is The Economist's
2: Europe correspondent. For months, migrants from Iraqi Kurdistan have been stuck in Belarus, being abused and beaten by security forces who are trying to force them to cross the Polish border. Poland's right-wing government and media denounce the migrants as criminals, and they're determined not to let them in. But not all Poles are so hostile to the migrants. While I was in Warsaw, I heard about a concert organized by a group of poets and artists uh, under the rubric, Chopin was a refugee too. Uh, Frederick Chopin, the great Polish-born pianist and composer, spent the second half of his life abroad, mostly in France. He was fleeing from the oppression of the Russian empire. Uh, But the idea was to enlist one of the icons of Polish culture to change the way that Poles think about the refugee crisis. And it's hard to exaggerate how central Frederick Chopin is to Poland's idea of its own cultural heritage. So I went to the show. The pianist Aleksandra Babrowska performed Chopin's Mazurka in A minor. Musicians have always found Mazurka in A minor to be somehow exotic. And a bit alien. There is a lot of extremely modern tonality in it. It's full of these chromatic progressions and sort of modal chords and dissonances. Chopin did listen to and play all kinds of ethnic folk music, Jewish and Ukrainian influences, and Italian and Austrian music. Of course, that was what he would have been playing as a young pianist as well. So there are all these sort of cosmopolitan international influences that were important in the development of his music. In late 1830, Chopin departed on his first really long musical tour abroad. Three weeks later, the Polish uprising broke out in Warsaw against the Russian Tsar. Ultimately, the Poles were crushed, thousands of people were executed, and a huge chunk of Poland's educated classes, about 50,000 people, fled abroad. And Chopin never went back. This narrative of exile repeated itself over and over through Polish history.
3: January 17th found the Russian armies moving victoriously into Warsaw. The Soviet troops had liberated the Polish capital from the Nazi reign of terror.
2: In the 1940s through 80s, another huge wave of émigrés fled communist oppression and settled in Western Europe, Britain, and the United States. One of those émigrés was Jaroslav Khodetsky, the organizer of the Chopin concert that I went to. I met Jaroslav at his hotel, which is called the Chopin Boutique B&B. They have Chopin concerts several our, times a
4: week. Our, our culture was
3: uh, created mostly abroad. Mm-hmm. That's
1: that's interesting, by the Polish refugee um, poets and
4: writers, for example.
2: To Jaroslav, yeah. Chopin is clearly a refugee. He's someone who stayed away from his country because of political repression. To him, that's a very analogous situation to the experience of these Iraqi Kurdish refugees who are trying to cross into the EU now. But a lot of more conservative polls find this tack to be a lot of politically correct nonsense. So, online and in articles in the mainstream press, people called the concert's organizers ignorant, they called them blockheads. It is true. That you can make a case that Chopin was not technically a refugee. He didn't flee after the 1830 uprising. He simply found himself abroad. He might have emigrated from Poland anyway because Warsaw was not an international musical center on the order of uh, Vienna or Rome or Paris at the time. But there's also a class dimension to this conflict. The word refugee in Poland is uchodza. Poles use that word to refer to people of low status. And it's not the kind of term that they would like to apply to intellectuals. But for some Poles, that class distinction is precisely what they object to. One of the people who spoke at the concert was the mayor of a village near the border, uh, Marek Nazarko from the town of Michalovo. He's been extending help to migrants who have managed to make it across the border, trying to find them uh, food and shelter. But he explains that A lot of the migrants, when they were initially encountered, were extremely distrustful, were terrified of anybody with a uniform. What some of the villagers have done is place green lights in their windows to let the migrants know which houses are safe for them to approach. A lot of average Poles have much friendlier sentiments towards migrants who they encounter. They feel that the experience these migrants are going through, the experience of exile, is at the heart of much of the core material of Polish culture, including the music of Frederick Chopin.
1: all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Marguerite Howell, Kim Giddleston, and Chris Impey. Our senior producers are Stevie Hertz, Sam Colbert, and Sam Westrick. Our producers are William Warren, Jason Hoskin, Rory Galloway, and Alize Jean-Baptiste, assistant producer Abisoye Oshandairo, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. We'll all see you back here on Monday.